You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Have you ever thought about bringing your own beverage into the stadium with you? Well, forget about that. You'd never get in the door with it. But believe it or not, there was a time when you could BYO your favorite beverage, and that was in the beer city, Milwaukee. So why didn't it work? Author Bill Pavletic will explain. We'll visit with one of the nation's very fine play-by-play broadcasters, Greg Lucas. He has a new book on Biggio and Bagwell, and it covers a great deal of Houston sports history. I doubt that any athletic entertainer has visited more ballparks and stadiums than the famous chicken. We'll learn his incredible story, and we'll find out which park is number one with him. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran reports on corporate naming rights invading the SEC. But first, let's go to the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Oh, Major League Baseball officials are expected to discuss potential stadium policy changes meant to curb unruly fan behavior. This comes just days after Fenway Park fans reportedly directed racist language at Baltimore Orioles outfielder Adam Jones. The league's 30 teams will be asked for their recommendations on just how to tighten up ballpark security and improve the overall fan experience. The Oakland Raiders have officially purchased land near the Las Vegas Strip where they plan to build a new 65,000-seat dome stadium. The Raiders are expected to join the UNLV football team in the new venue in the year 2020. Scary news out of St. Louis where a woman was grazed by a stray bullet while sitting in the stands at the Cardinals Bush Stadium. Police report that they had calls about shots fired near the stadium moments before the woman was struck. The woman felt a pain in her arm and quickly found a small abrasion on her elbow. No arrests have been made. And in a letter to Tennessee fans, Athletic Director John Curry said he is being assured that Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium will be ready when the Volunteers take on Georgia Tech in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game September 4th. Construction delays on the complex roof system have pushed back the opening of that venue. The Falcons are expected to host an exhibition game in the stadium in late August. Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. There has been a long and complex relationship between beer and the city of Milwaukee, and beer ties into baseball, and here we go with it. We have a very interesting story to tell. We're reaching out to Bill Pavletic to help us in telling it. Bill is a native of the state of Wisconsin. He's written a number of books about Milwaukee sports history, and in addition to his authorship, he is also an accomplished documentary filmmaker. There was a time when you could actually bring beer into Milwaukee's County Stadium. You could uh, BYO, if you will, and uh, that uh, was in the very early days of County Stadium, and that developed into a very complex story. Bill, let's tell that story. You know it. You have chronicled it. 
I guess the best place to start, Bill, is that in uh, right during spring training of 1953, mm-hmm. uh, the city of Milwaukee had built the first publicly funded stadium uh, in professional sports history in an attempt to lure a Major League Baseball team to Milwaukee. And they got the Milwaukee Braves on the hook, who were literally filling their Boston Stadium with thousands of people. And I mean like 5,000 a game, 7,000 a game. And they lured the Braves to Milwaukee. And the minute they showed up to Milwaukee, they became a phenomenon. They went from having like 250,000 season attendants in Boston in 52 to having 1.8 million fans in 1953. And the Braves broke all these records, essentially started the urban arms race between cities where they started vying um, with one another to lure professional franchises to their city. You can say that the Braves' successful move to Milwaukee led to the Dodgers and Giants moving west. It led to Kansas City and Mm -hmm. Dallas and Mm -hmm. Minneapolis getting franchises eventually because Milwaukee proved that there were people outside of the major metropolitan cities on the East Coast who wanted professional baseball. And with that, you know, fan support, the Milwaukee Braves as a franchise became very successful and and their glory days are very well documented with Eddie Matthews and Warren Spahn and Hank Aaron and Joe Adcock and I could Del Crandall I could I could go through the list for for days. Um they ended up winning a World Series in 1957 beating the Yankees in 7 games. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is often forgotten about that era is fans could carry in alcohol. Oftentimes, you know, of the 1.8 million fans that filled the seats in 1953, I'm pretty sure there were people who bought a ticket for themselves and then bought a ticket for their cooler full of beer or alcoholic, you know, libations. That was pretty much status quo across the country where you could bring carry-ons in. In the 60s, after the Braves won their World Series and lost the next year, and then in 1959 they ended up losing out on the postseason, attendance started to slip a little bit. You know, they ended up falling to 1.7 in 59, 1.5 million in 1960, and um, a lot of the Milwaukee elders and um, the county supervisors and whatnot thought, you know, it would be a good idea to ban carry-ins into the stadium. It, it created an immediate backlash. The irony is, and you kind of brought it up, is that here Milwaukee is the beer capital of the world. They had the four major brands. They had Miller, Schlitz, Pabst, and Blatt's. Those were the four kings. And then obviously the fifth king of American beer at the time was Budweiser in St. Louis. Yes. But the real irony is, is that Milwaukee was the first city and the Braves were the first team to institute this no-carrying ban. So here in the in the hub of the international brewery circle, that was the team that chose to do the no carry-in rule. History will argue it forever as to what the real motivation was, but what the facts do show is that an already apathetic fan base where attendance was dwindling, they ended up having 1.5 million people go to Braves games in 1960, and because of this this ban, only 1.1 million showed up in 1961. So, you know, you, you almost lost a third of your fans because of this ban. Not only is the team kind of slipping as far as quality, but now the, the, the fan loyalty is slipping because not only are you not putting out as good of a product as you once had, but you're no longer letting people bring in their own drinks to enjoy themselves during the games. 
And about this time, the rumors started to pick up about Bill Bartholomew moving the team from Milwaukee, and they had a new suitor in Atlanta with a brand-new state-of-the-art stadium just waiting for them. And uh, this just helped to build up the uh, the fear that they were going to lose it. And what happens, uh, Bill? The attendance what? falls off even more. Yeah, I mean, what's really tragic about the the Braves story is the model that the city of Milwaukee used to lure the Braves from Boston was essentially the same model that Atlanta used to lure the Braves to Atlanta. A lot of people are emotionally tied to the Milwaukee Braves. I still I have so many friends who, you know, went to games, are still very passionate about the Braves. They still loathe the move. But when you look at it from a business decision, and when Lou Perini moved the Braves from Boston, Milwaukee, it was purely a business decision. So when Bill Bartholomew moved the Braves from Milwaukee to Atlanta, it was a business decision because in Milwaukee, you had minimal television rights, which were essentially boxed in by Minneapolis to the west and Chicago to the south, Canada to the north, and you had Lake Michigan to the east. So the, the, the television rights were very minimal in Milwaukee. When you compare that to Atlanta, you pretty much had everything south of the Mason-Dixon line and everything east of the Mississippi River. At that point, television was becoming very influential in financially funding these teams. It, you know, it's, it's a softball. Bill Bartholomew was handed a softball in Atlanta to hit. Well, Bill, <laughs> it's great to visit with you. Congratulations on everything. What a fascinating story and a part, really, of baseball history and Milwaukee history. And thank you yes. very much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's been an absolute pleasure. Bill Pavletic, as you may be aware, he does an awful lot of stuff in Burbank and Hollywood and all of the great production centers surrounding Los Angeles. It's great to have him as a guest visiting about County Stadium and the days when you could walk in with your own beer. How about that? Coming up next, the former voice of the Astros, Rockets, and Rangers and Spurs takes us on a tour of stadiums and arenas throughout the Southwest. Greg Lucas will join us next on SB Nation Radio. Do I have a treat for you? Greg Lucas, who has done everything from the Spurs to the Rockets, the Mavericks, the Pacers. Well, it turns out that Greg is also an author, and he has just written the latest in a series of books called Houston to Cooperstown, the Houston Astros, Biggio and Bagwell Years. Greg, it is so great to hear your voice. We have a lot of friends in common, and I'm sorry it's been about 45 years since we last talked. But you're sounding real good to me. Great memories from back uh, back in those days. Of course, we both got to broadcast in the legendary Hinkle Fieldhouse. Yes. Uh, which has been modified and renewed and made great, but it's still the great old building that it was. So it's a long time ago, but we, we both have great memories. You have gone on and in recent years started a very prolific writing career. And your latest book focuses on two of the greatest Houston Astros players who led them to great success. What attracted you particularly to these guys and this circumstance? 
Well, partly because for 17 years I served on the announcing crew for the Astros and uh, all different roles. Mostly I was a field-level commentator, but I also did play-by-play in both TV and radio. In 2000, I did about 75 games. And uh, these guys played on the team, and they were the leaders of the team, uh, no question about it. And I started putting it together a couple of years ago, and it was going to be written whether or not uh, Jeff Bagwell made the Hall of Fame or not, Mm -hmm. but the timing couldn't have been better because, as you know, he got the needed votes in January and will be inducted in uh, in, uh, late July. Biggio's already in, so it's, uh, it's, it's doing pretty well so far from what I hear, and it was a labor of love. You have seen two franchises that really made a transfer from old venues to new stadiums. One, of course, being the Texas Rangers, who went from the old ballpark to the park next to Holtz Lake. So uh, tell us about that. You better look quick because they're going to get another new one. Yeah, Uh, so I heard. They're putting a roof in uh, in a new ballpark. I'll tell you what, Arlington Stadium, I, I had the distinction of working the last game in Arlington Stadium and the first game in the ballpark in Arlington, which was was called at the time. Mm -hmm. And I also worked the last game in the Astrodome and the first game here in Houston at Minute Maid Park. Arlington Stadium was a converted um, minor league park. They had enlarged it. It had very little cover from the sun. But because of the, the weather patterns in North Texas, which are extremely hot in the summer, but at night, once the sun falls, there tends to be a pretty good breeze. It got a somewhat undeserved reputation for being hotter than it really was. When I say that, because once the sun went down, it was fairly comfortable out there. It was hot air, but it was blowing. Uh, the new ballpark is a little bit more enclosed, and it is it does retain the heat a little bit uh, much, but uh, it's a beautiful ballpark. And Arlington Stadium was a, a fun place to watch baseball, especially when the crowds were big. And I was there during the Nolan Ryan years, and Mm. every time Nolan pitched, you knew the crowd was going to be big. You know, I never thought the day would come when the Astros moved out of the Astrodome. It was such an incredible experience. And along came the new stadium. That gives Houston the distinction of being the only city in the United States with three dome stadiums, believe it or not. True, and they're, they're, they they don't open either one as much uh, as you a lot of the fans would like. The football team is playing a retractable uh, dome, a retractable stadium they don't use. The Astrodome was a solid uh, dome, and actually, physically, it is still in very good uh, structural shape. In fact, there's been a negotiation as to what they may do with it, and uh, mm-hmm. I think something will be done with the Astrodome. It won't be used as a sports venue on a major level anymore because they've, they've pulled the seats out. But they want to put uh, uh, a floor at field level. That building is three stories below ground where the field is, yeah. and then put some interior parking, and then on top, use that huge space for all sorts of possibilities, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of work going on to preserve the building because it was, after all, the first stadium of its kind in the world. So uh, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what the future is. As far as Minute Maid Park is concerned, it's a better place to watch a baseball game because it didn't have to be circular uh, to hold two sports. Therefore, the seats are all closer to the field. It's a, it's a it's a nice venue. What about the first minute made uh, game you did? Did it go off without a hitch, Greg, or did you have uh, some technical issues? Well, strangely, the opening there was fine. The opening at the ballpark in Arlington, which was the original name where the Rangers play, mm-hmm. uh, it was they discovered after the on the first day that they had forgotten to put in a clock. 
they had no clock, so there was no way for the umpires to actually know when the game was exactly supposed to start. Uh, and uh, of course, the the managing general, one of the managing general partners at the time, Tom Schieffer, uh, he said, well, that's okay. Baseball is a timeless game. <laughs> but even so, they did put in a clock, but they didn't have one for opening day. I want to definitely ask you about some of your favorite ballparks, Greg, and your favorite uh, memories of them. Well, obviously Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. I had a chance to actually do a number of quite a few games as the play-by-play announcer on both radio and television from Wrigley for one reason or the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have some great memories of the uh, the jets from the air show flying over and making people in the stands duck. They seem to be that low. <laughs> or the time that it got so dark in the middle of the day with a storm coming in, it was midnight. I mean, it was dark. You never forget things like that. Yankee Stadium, the first time I went into the old Yankee Stadium that and, and got to do a game there. And uh, Fenway, I mean, I'm talking about the ones everybody knows. Uh, you never forget those. And I have a great reverence for the old old ballparks and old stadiums, and I've yeah. luckily been able to be uh, in a number of them, both, uh, both Comiskeys, the new and the old, and some of the new and old places. St. Louis, uh, I was in the original Bush Stadium as a kid, and then the circular Bush Stadium, which was there for a long time, and then the new one. So uh, these are some great, great memories. Greg, about the book Houston to Cooperstown, the Houston Astros, Biggio and Bagwell years, how do people get hold of it? Well, it's it's available in Barnes & Nobles. It's also available on Amazon. It focuses on the Biggio and Bagwell years, but it actually starts going back as far as uh, the beginning of the franchise and even some of the racial situations in the city of Houston right before they got Major League Baseball. Even after the American Football League had already started, it was the power of baseball that got the hotels open. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a week before the first game of the Cold 45s, which was the original name of the team, and uh, how the black citizenry really are as much responsible for the Astrodome as anything because they were uh, – instrumental in pushing the vote over when the Astrodome was constructed. Without the plan for the Astrodome being constructed, not knowing whether or not Houston would have been in the first wave of expansion, people forget that when baseball expanded really for the first time in 1961 and 62, Houston was the only new city because they were putting an American League team in the Los Angeles area. Well, they already had the Dodgers there. They were putting an American League team in Washington to replace the Twins who had moved while they already had baseball in Washington. Mm -hmm. And the New York Mets were going to New York, where they already had had the Yankees and had had the Dodgers and Giants. Houston was the only brand-new territory. And if the Astrodome had not been on the boards, uh, it might have been somewhere else. It is great to hear your voice again. You sound fantastic. And uh, I want to thank you and go out and sell a million of those books. That's the plan. That will make my retirement even easier. (laughs) Greg Lucas, our guest, very, very fine broadcaster and author. Coming up now, we go to the water cooler. Mark Madoran is standing by. We're going to dive into what's ailing the new home of the Minnesota Vikings. So stay tuned. That is next on SP Nation Radio. It is time to talk shop once again. We examine the week's stadium headlines. And for that, 
we turn to Mark Madoran, president and creator of Stadiums USA. Well, Mark, traditionally college football teams have been somewhat immune to the pull of corporate naming rights, particularly in the SEC and quite a bit in the Big Ten. But that tradition seems to be eroding, Mark. Let's take a look at the University of Kentucky and some big news regarding Wildcats Commonwealth Stadium. The University of Kentucky will become the first SEC school to rename their football stadium. First Commonwealth Stadium got a facelift recently and now aware a brand new sign with a new name, Kroger Field. Mm. Uh, Kroger is a grocery and nutrition company. Oh, yeah. Their annual contribution will be about $1.85 million. Now, the University of Kentucky sold their multimedia rights in 2014 for $210 million to JMI Sports. And JMI is really the person or the entity that negotiated the naming rights deal with Kroger. Uh, and we can expect other UK facilities are going to get uh, corporate names as well based on JMI having the rights to negotiate all those deals. And one of them will be the new baseball stadium that's currently under construction. But this is going to mark a trend. Other SEC schools are going to see this happening, and they are going to go after the dollars. So don't be surprised. If Kentucky can get $1.85 million a year for their football stadium, what's LSU worth? Yeah, indeed. What's Arkansas worth? Indeed. And this is inevitable, is it not, Mark? It has to. The uh, economics of it are just too great. The, uh, the financial reward is amazing. And these deals are long-term. Uh, the Kroger deal is... Uh, stretched out over something like 20 years. So there's a lot of dollars involved, and the athletic departments are looking to gobble these dollars up any way they can. So mm -hmm. don't be surprised if you see uh, some very, very big, well-known stadiums become uh, corporate naming rights deals in the near future. Wrigley Field and Fenway Park will be forever linked in baseball lore. And now comes the word that the Cubs are looking at what the Red Sox have done to try to improve the fan experience by closing some of the popular streets that border the ballpark. That's the Red Sox policy right now. The Cubs have been trying to do that. And what are they looking at? Well, the Cubs are looking to close two main streets that are right in front of their ballpark on game days. That's Clark Street and Addison. Remember, the Boston people moved to Chicago uh, as Theo Epstein came to Chicago with some of his staff. Yeah. And in Boston, they do close a number of streets around that ballpark. Part of it's for fan safety to make sure that there's no interaction with cars, but partly they're concerned about terror attacks. As you remember, there are some very serious truck terror attacks in places like Nice, Berlin, and London, where uh, trucks ran over quite a few people in large crowds. Mm -hmm. They have put concrete barriers around the streets in Boston, and those uh, streets are now just pedestrian only on game days. They're hoping to do the same thing in Chicago, although they do close Clark Street, from what I understand, uh, a few blocks uh, south of the ballpark. That's right. That's right. And a few blocks north of the ballpark. So there's no residential traffic or regular car traffic on Clark. But I don't think Addison is closed. And that's one of the streets they're very concerned with because Addison runs very, very close to the ballpark. They're very concerned that that's a problem. Now, you have to remember, both Clark Street and Addison Street 
are much more major streets in Chicago than is Lansdowne Street in Boston. Lansdowne's kind of a, mm -hmm. a small side street. Clark Street is a is a very good sized street, and Addison is a major east-west street on the north side. So it's one of their concerns. It's interesting to note that Wrigley Field ranked last with Major League Baseball in their business operations security plan, mm. and it's partly because of the uh, the closeness of Addison to the ballpark itself. Yeah, a lot of bars around there, Mark. That's another difference uh, between the Wrigley Field situation. That Clark Street is absolutely packed with bars. Probably the most prominent of those is the Cubby Bear, but there are a lot of them. Mark, just nine months into its existence, the new Vikings U.S. Bank Stadium is having problems. These are structural problems. What is going on here? Well, nine months after opening the U.S. Bank Stadium, there are still construction problems being addressed. They include leaky walls and loose panels. The panels we've talked about in the past, they've been a continuing problem at the stadium. Last summer, some storms loosened up some of the exterior panels. Uh, they were quickly repaired, but for safety reasons, they were keeping a close eye on that. The building is covered with zinc panels, and those panels seem to be coming loose in uh, high winds. So it's something they're going to have to figure out. Hmm. Uh, we also understand water leakage has been a problem, not from the roof, but through the sides of the building. And that's caused uh, some of the issues, I guess, on the north side, where there are some washrooms that got flooded occasionally from heavy rains. So there's always some work to be done. This is an extremely complex building, and um, there are relatively minor issues when compared with uh, the total uh, construction. And uh, the thing that we're watching the most is that roof, that beautiful, clear roof that brings the sunlight into the stadium. Yeah. And that has actually performed beautifully. So few things need to be done in Minneapolis, but it sounds like that stadium will be ready for the Super Bowl. Yeah. All right, Mark, it's time to roll back the clock and take a look at some important dates. Frank Sinatra has the throat spray. He's all ready to sing. And let's go back for some important dates in stadium and ballpark history. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. This week in 1891, I'm sure you remember this one. No, yeah. Cy Young pitches in the first ever game played at Cleveland's League Park. Mm -hmm. The Cleveland Spiders defeat the Cincinnati Redlegs 12-3. Yeah, they had discount tickets that day. I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> this week in 1947, coincidentally, the Cleveland Indians abandoned League Park. And League Park had a good long run. Sure did. But they abandoned League Park, and they moved to their new stadium, Cleveland Municipal Stadium, finally known as the Mistake by the Lake. Yeah. yeah. And this week in 1995, in the final NBA game at the old Boston Garden, the Orlando Magic beat the Celtics. And what can you tell us about working at the Garden? Because you did many times. Oh, I did, and I loved going in there. They rolled out the red carpet. They put us right dead center, what was called the Network TV Announcing Booth, and it was right there at dead center court, and uh, it was amazing. I also remember the rodent population was quite friendly, Mark. When I walked in there, one of the rodents came up and looked at me and kind of said to me, uh, welcome to Boston Garden. Garden. You have a candy bar or something? I'm getting a little hungry. Yeah, that was a problem there at the gardens at the end, <laughs> we understand. Oh, yeah. They, they were as big as house cats, too. <laughs> 
And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, Stadiums USA Trivia. Got a good one for you this week. This is not your batting practice fastball. Okay. Here we go. All of the foul poles in big league ballparks are painted yellow. Okay. That is with the exception of one park. Can you name the only major league baseball stadium where the foul poles are painted orange? Mm. Is it A, Camden Yards in Baltimore? Is it B, AT&T Park in San Francisco? Is it C, City Field in New York? Or is it D, Marlins Park in Miami? Oh, wow. This is a tough one. And you're right. I'm just going to close my eyes and take a swing at this. This is no BP fastball. I'm going to say it's uh, AT&T Park in San Francisco. An excellent guess. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, incorrect. All right. The correct answer is City Field in New York. Oh, Oh, how about that? I didn't know that. The orange foul poles were a tradition starting back at Chase Stadium, and they carried that over when they moved to the new ballpark, City Field. And that was a really tough question. Yeah. Uh, City Field in New York is the answer. So, Mark, have a good week. We'll see you next week. Have a good week, Bill. Coming up, a true American success story, a conversation with the man who is the San Diego Chicken, easily the most recognizable mascot in all of sports. And that's coming up next on SB Nation Radio. The next voice that you are about to hear is a voice you probably have never heard before, but you have certainly seen this gentleman's act in America. He is the character that we know as the famous chicken, and his name is Ted Giannoulis. He is living happily ever after, after a number of decades of uh, working with the chicken character. It's our pleasure to visit with him, and he still gets out and puts in some time with that chicken character and loves to entertain. Ted, we have visited before. It is so great to hear your voice once again. From what I understand, you're enjoying life. Oh, yes, absolutely. I still live in San Diego uh, and still enjoy uh, getting a kick of going out on the road and performing. Not as much as I used to, of course. Uh, I've been doing this now for 42 years, and I've been to eight countries around the world and uh, all 50 states. But uh, I still enjoy uh, immensely and intensely what I do. Well, let's wind it back 42 years, shall we? Let's go back. How did this all start? Well, it was the day before spring break in March of 1974. (laughs) I'm a student at San Diego State University. And um, since the campus was deserted, I decided to hang out at the campus radio station where I was a part-time DJ and just helping out uh, on the side. And there were only about four or five of us uh, hanging around, still undecided what we're going to do. I walk into the classroom, and that's about the size of our radio station. was the size of a classroom. (laughs) And uh, and I, I was just hanging around for a few moments when a gentleman walks in from a real radio station and asks us uh, on the spot if anybody would uh, give up their spring break time to come and work on a special promotion uh, with the radio station. 
And we're very excited, of course. Anything to get our real foot in the door at a real radio station. And so uh, he wants to make short work of all of this as he explains, look, we just want somebody to go to the zoo, give away candy Easter eggs, and you got to wear a chicken suit, and we're only paying two bucks an hour. It didn't matter to any of us there. Uh, we all raised our hands. And so to make short work of it, he looks around the room quickly, points to me in the corner, and says, you, the short guy. You'll fit the costume best of all. You start tomorrow morning. <laughs> Which stadiums have been your particular favorite, or perhaps where you've just had a tremendous experience there? Yes. Well, Bill, I, I got to tell you, I doubt there are very few people like myself who've been to so many stadiums and arenas around the world, yeah. and especially throughout the United States. I've seen quite a few. My current favorite one, I've got to say, is a minor league ballpark in Indianapolis. Minor league in name only. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victory Field. It is such a well-thought-out stadium. The concourses are wide. The seats and the sight lines are so well adjusted to the field and it's uh, a very very uh, picturesque as you look out towards um, the center field and see the skyline of Indianapolis it was built with the fan in mind and it's interesting to note that the designers uh, of the stadium relied heavily on the front office themselves uh, because they the front office the president and the vice presidents of the uh, Indianapolis Indians Baseball Club, they've been there a long time, and they knew exactly what they were looking for in implementing the stadium. So it's well thought out, even for the players, and so that's always been a favorite. In the major leagues, I really love the old Arlington, uh, Texas Stadium. Again, um, where the Texas Rangers used to play was a um, a double-A minor league stadium that they kept building on top of one after another, section by section, as the years went on. And it was such a glorious stadium because the fans could sit so close to the action and get such a great angle on all the plays that I really loved it. Now, you entertain not only in baseball. A lot of people associate you with baseball, but I know you've done an awful lot with basketball, too. How do the dynamics of entertaining change between the sports. In basketball, the court becomes a stage during a timeout, and it's absolutely wonderful for what I do. Keep in mind, uh, that's only 90 feet of floor space, and it's a wonderful stage. Everyone sits right on top of you there, whereas in baseball, those fans obviously sit four and 500 feet away in some instances if you're performing on the diamond, and, and you know those fans are uh, quite a distance. But in basketball, Boy, right on top. And hockey also is great. They're, they're, it doesn't allow the timeouts that, that I normally would uh, uh, get for baseball and basketball to go out there and cavort. But the action is so fluid that if I position myself correctly behind the glass and around the arena, I can play off of the action and be seen in, in the same frame as uh, the players crashing up against the glass. Quick story. Uh, one time I'm performing in St. Louis for the uh, St. Louis Blues at the old... Um, Checkered uh, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, Hall of Fame broadcaster um, Dan Kelly was doing the play-by-play. And I'm positioned behind the, the, the glass, and uh, two players just come crashing up against the glass in a body check right up against me. And I go, I pretend like I'm, I'm body checked through the glass, and I go <laughs> flying with the popcorn uh, going up in the air. 
Dan Kelly loses himself on the air. Uncapo <laughs> starts laughing, and they score a goal immediately right after. And and he, he did not describe it. And he had to apologize to the audience why he missed the, the description of the goal for the first time in his career because he was laughing so hard because Bernie Ferdurko and and some other uh, a player just crashed and body checked the chicken through the glass into the third <laughs> row, and, and uh, he couldn't contain his own laughter oh my that brings back a lot of wonderful <laughs> memories for me ted you know ted it's great to hear your voice you sound just as good as i remember from years ago when we last talked and uh and enjoy life in san diego we'll look for you out on the road somewhere i appreciate the kind thoughts bill thank you and congratulations on your great program ted thank you ted giannoulis you may know him as the famous chicken that's our program for this week bill hazen saying we hope you enjoyed it we have a full day of sports coverage ahead it's coming your way right here on sb nation radio